Hello everybody, we're here with the Tokyo Fintech podcast live from Binary Star in Ginza and our guest today is Benjamin Tsai, the president of Wave Financial. Hello Benjamin, how are you? Hi, I'm doing great, how are you? You look very well for a 16 hour time <laughs> difference, I must say, so you're used to the travel. Sure, I, I think you've got me at the, at the best time possible, I'll probably fade in a few hours. <laughs> okay, so we'll take best advantage of this. Benjamin, you have a long history in, in, in Japan. You came here very early in your career. So maybe we start kind of with, with that part of the story. What brought you to Japan in the first place? Sure. Uh, I, I, it's, it's funny. I uh, graduated from Berkeley with an engineering degree, and I came out to Japan actually in 95. Uh, I guess no one told me that the bubble had bursted, so <laughs> that was kind of an interesting one. Uh, I spent some time working at a number of firms, including NEC, doing research and development. So uh, more on the semiconductor side because of my background. Uh, I found it quite interesting. I have, I think, one, if not one and a quarter patent to my name uh, while I was at NEC. I think they own everything, so it doesn't really matter. But, uh, you know, it was, a, it was a very good experience. Uh, I also worked at a, a pachinko factory for a number of months, and that was in itself a very interesting experience. And that's where uh, I picked up my Japanese. So you're fluent in three languages. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, you know, my wife's Japanese. I speak Japanese at home, and uh, you know, so it, it is something that I've, you know, I've continued to use. And uh, yeah, so after uh, about four years in engineering, I went back to UCLA for my business degree, and then after that, I came back actually to Tokyo, and I've spent uh, another. Uh, I spent 15 years across Asia, actually, in finance uh, thereafter. Out of that, uh, eight of that was in Japan uh, with uh, Merrill Lynch, Merrill Lynch Japan Securities, which is up the street. And uh, yeah, and it was, it's, it's been, it was a, quite a good experience. Uh, I spent a total of about 12 years with Merrill Lynch uh, doing uh, structured products. I ran the structured products desk across Asia. And then I ran the commodities desk across Asia. And, um, you know, the... Uh, because the last stint actually was asked to move to Singapore, so I went out to Singapore and, and, and so forth. So um, after that, I went over to the buy side. I spent three years with Alliance Bernstein and uh, looked at a lot of the alternative investments. Um, and uh, you know, I ran the alternative investments business across Asia, and that was also very interesting. Looked at investments really from a buy side perspective, uh, wealth management, and so forth. So spent quite a bit of time with wealth managers, private banks, and so forth, and, and seeing how that whole uh, industry worked. Uh, about three years ago, I uh, moved back to the U.S. I kind of had enough of the uh, Asia expat traveling life, spending a lot of time at airports and so forth. And my kids were getting older. My son was about to start high school, so I moved back to the U.S. And uh, so I currently live in uh, Los Angeles. And so Wave Financial is a relatively new venture. Uh, so having returned to the U.S., what made you kind of create your own firm? Sure. So um, going back to the U.S., um, uh, I started uh, investing in real estate and also investing in fintech, and I noticed everybody in fintech was moving into blockchain and cryptocurrency. So I came up to speed on that, was an advisor to uh, a number of firms uh, in that space. And then um, I started actually, uh, was a co-founder and now currently the CFO of the LA Blockchain Lab. It's a nonprofit uh, that connects uh, UCLA, USC, UC Irvine, Caltech, and also the city government of Los Angeles. So it's a nonprofit. We connect academia with the government. We're trying to promote uh, blockchain usage, uh, blockchain adoption in Los Angeles. And there isn't a lot of other groups in LA that is, is pushing for that at that level. So that's something that we're excited about and we continue to work on that. 
So from a, from a US perspective, and especially when you look at blockchain, AI, financial services, where, where's kind of the epicenter of that, what would you say? I think they're, they're, it's, it's all over the place. I think more financial focus is done more out of New York. Mm-hmm. A lot of the more technical development is coming out of uh, the Silicon Valley, San Francisco, or let's call it the Bay Area. And uh, LA actually was at one point the epicenter of a lot of ICOs and so forth. Uh, you know, EOS was born to a certain extent out of the US, mm-hmm. if, uh, out of the LA, if you want to call it that. Uh, so, so that part of it uh, was, was quite interesting. And, uh, you know, as I was working on the LA Blockchain Lab, uh, you know, we did a number of interesting projects. We were, uh, um, you know, we actually um, consulted a Lamborghini on their blockchain, uh, you know, usage and getting the, the, the board up to speed on their uh, work there and so forth. And that was very interesting. And, and I was joking with people that I'm one of the few people that actually got Lam- money out of Lamborghini. So, you know, for, uh, in this whole blockchain uh, environment. So, um, so I think that that was a very good experience, and that led me to uh, you know a few other ventures, and I met uh, David Seymour, who's actually you know the the, the founder of our firm. So uh, David and I wanted to start an asset management company, and he comes from a, a deep VC background, and I come from more of a finance background. So we kind of put our heads together, put a team together, and we started uh, Wave Financial. And so also the, the way you started the, the story, I mean, investing and trading crypto is one thing and then using blockchain to make societal change and help a LA government, for example, is a completely different part of the story. Where do you sit with the financial across that spectrum? So I think it's it's very interesting. I think there, when I first started, I was very interested in kind of keeping crypto and blockchain separate. I I felt like if possible, maybe they should be done separately or they they have kind of different angles. And part of it has to do with that. I think crypto has had a bad name with kind of a number of, you know, let's say less than kosher ICO projects and so forth. And so there was a general negative feel to ICOs and there was an interest from my perspective, at least to kind of keep, uh, keep on the blockchain and the enterprise side. But at the core of it all, I think for people that actually understand this quite well, um, the crypto and the blockchain side are part of the same system. It's kind of both sides of the same coin. You can't really get rid of one or the other. The, um, the crypto side is the incentive system that keeps the blockchain going. And without that, it's just an enterprise database. And that is not the whole point of the whole blockchain. The blockchain is more about having distributed systems, having people around the world that are doing this, that are calculating, that are keeping track and keeping ledgers and so forth. And for them to keep a distributed ledger, they have to be incentivized. And that's how the crypto kicked in. So uh, it's very hard to split the two. And to a certain extent, I think I've come to a realization that that probably doesn't quite make sense. So, uh, you know, that's not something I'm, I'm as focused on. And, uh, you know, our focus right now really as a business is we're, in, we're a financial services firm. We're not a technology firm we're really focused on creating you know asset management solutions that take into account of both the blockchain side and the crypto side and so in terms of the the asset management solution and we're obviously not giving investment advice here on this podcast so uh, we need to issue that disclaimer uh, but what type of solution you're you're looking to provide to your clients 
So from my perspective, I think there are a number of ways to access this space. I think the first way, obviously, is active management. And active management is relying on experts who are in this space who can manage your assets for you. Uh, you know, we consider ourselves an expert in this space, and this mm -hmm. is one of the services we do provide. Uh, the second one is, and you can see this mirrored in the traditional finance world, there are a lot of uh, ETFs out there for you to take a passive, let's call it a beta, exposure to the market. We think that that can be done. We think that that's, that makes sense. So we, uh, when I first joined the firm, we started an index called the Wave Select 20 Index. It uh, basically indexes the top 20 cryptocurrencies in the space. Uh, monthly rebalance and it's a market cap weighted index so that covers I believe right now about 93% of the market mm -hmm. to get the other 7% you need to go out another few hundred coins and it's really not worth the effort so we believe something over 90% is more than reasonable and it's a good measure of the, the market um, to take it a step further in wealth management space there are people who are excuse me there are people who are interested in uh, yield generating products or yield paying products so I'm in the process of developing products that are yield generating using uh, crypto derivatives and that's something that is an up-and-coming field uh, that's something I'm personally very interested in due to my background and um, I think as, as just for completeness and we can talk about any of these pieces for completeness I think there's one other way of using blockchain that is not crypto specific which is the uh, securitization and the tokenization of hard assets that can be used for investments. So the, the derivatives will be very interesting because so far some would argue that you haven't really had an opportunity to short the market in a, in a very structured way or institutional way and maybe at the end of 2007 when we had like the, the CME and CBOE futures coming out it was like the first blip and kind of was the beginning of the market turning um, without going into market projections. But this is from an, from an overall uh, asset management perspective, that's something that's lacking in the market, essentially the facilities to effectively hatch the exposure and also take, take kind of also a naked derivatives exposure? Sure. I think what I am trying to do is I'm trying to take a step back and reproduce what happens in the traditional finance world in the crypto world. And I, I'm, let me kind of give you a few more macro data points. Uh, I don't have an exact data point on the percentage that is under active management versus direct investments, but I believe that it's very skewed right now in cryptocurrency. It's very skewed for individuals to take specific bets on individual coins. Whereas in the equities world, a large portion of that is in active management. And a smaller portion, but growing portion, is done in the ETF space. So those two pieces are signs that active management in a fund format and uh, index uh, management in terms of like an ETF type product are the trends going forward. Mm -hmm. And that's the direction we're going down. The other area which is very interesting is if you look at traditional finance, the let's call it let's let's say equities in equities the cash equities market or the pure equities market versus the derivatives market the derivatives market is about 11 times bigger than the cash market so if you take a similar mapping your derivatives market should be 10 11 times bigger than the cash market in 
cryptocurrency, which would be a huge market that is currently just in nascent phase. And when I say derivatives, I think on the very first cut, people think about futures, people think about, uh, you know, do, you know, uh, getting leverage and so forth by using futures and then being able to short because these are just contracts. Um, I think that that's kind of the first order derivatives. People are starting to do that. You're starting to see a lot of volume going through mm -hmm. for Bitcoin to a small extent on ETH, but you're starting to see that. What I'm actually finding more interesting is what I would call kind of kind of some of the more complex options, call options, put options on Bitcoin, where you're seeing you're taking a nonlinear exposure to these asset classes. You can go long, you can go short, and so forth. These products are starting to be traded. We're seeing some volume on Darebit, which is a European exchange that does this. Uh, we're, we're seeing um, them do Bitcoin options, calls and puts for one month, three months on out. Uh, you know, pretty deep market and it's pretty good. And we're also seeing them just very recently open an ETH version of that. That's still a little on the thin side, but it's starting. That gives an outlet for a lot of the institutional investors to start taking these nonlinear exposures. What it does for me, which is something I'm working on, is taking that and creating more exotic structures that can potentially be yield generating for the clients. And that's something that, that we're working on. And uh, you know, feel free to contact me if you're interested <laughs> in things of that nature. Yeah, so. And so if we, if we do the comparison further, kind of with the traditional markets and where we could go in terms of the market size, et cetera, um, what does the investor side looks like? It looks like from an institutional perspective, we're still also in the very early stages of institutions actually taking even kind of the straight crypto exposure. So if you're talking about timeline, where do you see this, this happening? That is a very good question. And that's something that everybody wants and everybody is interested in. But I think there are two things that are holding this back. One is kind of a lack of transparency as to where this is going and whether this is an investment asset class or not. Mm -hmm. I think uh, Cambridge Associates or um, Cambridge uh, came up with a report that talked about um, you know, this being an asset class and that uh, pensions and, and endowments should start looking at it as a way to take exposure, low correlation, high potential returns and so forth. And I think they published that near the bottom of the market. So there was good timing on that <laughs> part. Uh, but I think that that is a good way of looking at it. That's one part of it. And the second part of it is how to take proper exposure. Uh, I don't think the endowments want to buy the tokens and download it into some hardware wallet and keep in their vault or safe or whatever they do. It, they're, they're more comfortable as institutional investors for these assets to show up in a paper statement kept by a major financial institution. This was not possible before, but it is now becoming a possibility. We have uh, four or five qualified custodians out there. Uh, we know because we're a registered investment advisor in California, so we, we speak with all of them. and. There is uh, Coinbase, BitGo, Kingdom Trust, Prime Trust. They're all qualified custodians by kind of U.S. standards in terms of being a, a custodian that a registered wealth manager can use to keep their clients' assets. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's, that's a starting point. The other starting point, which is very exciting, is actually um, 
Fidelity. Fidelity is starting to get into the custodial business. I spoke with them at the end of last year, and they basically told me they've been working on this for two, three years. They've been really interested in. They start actually in their philanthropy department, which gets the least questions of what they're doing. And they basically took in donations in crypto, and they've been running crypto, uh, you know, as as an experiment. And from there, they've decided they wanted to be in. They wanted to be in custody, and they built a business out. It's called Fidelity Digital Assets. Uh, you know, we're we're signing up to be a, one of their clients, and um, you know they're 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 just doing Bitcoin custody right now. They will slowly put in ETH next. I think they were they mentioned Q3. They're they're slowly thinking about doing other services with that, but their very first service is custodian. That is the first time where you can any institutional investor can say, yeah, I bought some Bitcoin. Fidelity's got it, and here's a paper statement. You hand it to your accountant; mm-hmm. they count it in their books, and you're done. Did no questions asked. I mean, Fidelity holds your assets. What, what more do you want? So, they're applying to become a qualified custodian. They should probably get that done on Q3. So, I think that that is a, a real, uh, you know, avenue for institutional investors to get involved in this. They're also opening up a dark pool. They're very strong in the dark pool on the equity side already as Fidelity, and they're going to use the same technology to open a dark pool for Bitcoin trading for all of their clients. Uh, once that's open, that will become extremely interesting because that they, they would basically have their own internal exchange uh, to be able to do that. So, uh, you know, I, I look forward to seeing what that looks like. And that's on the roadmap. They're going to get that done uh, pretty quickly. And they're thinking about a few other services also. But those are all legs that I think that would really allow institutional investors to be comfortable with holding cryptocurrency or at least Bitcoin now and more other assets in the future as time goes. So it's how you how it just ended this. So you, you would see the entry for institutional investors to be Bitcoin at first, given kind of the large market cap share it has. Yes, I think I, I personally think that they should invest in a beta product. They should take a look at our index. They should look at taking an exposure that gives them a wider range. But from their perspective, in terms of ease of handling, in terms of buying and holding and getting a piece of paper at the end of the month that says you know where their statements are, mm-hmm. they probably would start with the likes of Fidelity and they would probably start with uh, you know, Bitcoin. And, and, and that's okay. I'm looking forward to them you know, getting involved. So yeah, that, that would be my guess. And so the, the other topic that's big is kind of securities token. Your firm is invested in securities and shares post with, with some, some positions. Um, is that coming in the US versus kind of the other, other jurisdictions? Who will take the lead in terms of that regulated environment? So uh, let me kind of answer your question on a, on a big picture perspective. Um, I lived in Tokyo, Hong Kong, Singapore, Taipei, and I was a registered representative in all of those countries, you know, exams and all. And also I was, uh, you know, I was licensed, I'm currently licensed in the U.S. for as a wealth manager, mm-hmm. as an investment advisor, I think is the right word. So, uh, you know, I'm a big believer in being registered and being licensed and doing offerings legally. And from a U.S. perspective, uh, you know, the security token framework is coming. It's something that works by U.S. standards. I've actually done the homework in terms of doing a lot of this. I've spoken with a lot of lawyers and incurred a lot of bills. And, you know, I actually believe that the U.S., there is a viable path for a security token to be offered. Um, So that is very interesting. And I think that can work. By U.S. standards, and and this is something that I'll be talking about in kind of the meetup I'm doing tomorrow, 
we we are looking at U.S. regulations. There is a clear path of what you can do legally, and then there is very clearly a path of what you cannot do. And that starts with SEC looking at you know the Howey test you know of projects. If projects were raised with you know, investments and monetary gains and tradability in mind, then that violates the Howey test. And by violating the Howey test, then the offering becomes illegal. If the offering is illegal, then the SEC can come and give pressure to kind of having that those investment be withdrawn and so forth. And I think the first line in the sand out of many lines of drawn in the sand, the first line in the sand is uh, the the uh, Dow project. And basically, there's a general understanding within the market that anything that happened before the Dow project is okay. Let's we're letting it go. Dow was the first guy that got busted. Thereafter, you're supposed to follow securities laws. Now, as everybody knows, that happened a while back, and there were a lot of ICOs thereafter. Uh, being sold to U.S. clients, uh, individuals without a registration or an exemption, that becomes a, a, a big problem. U.S. regulations are actually relatively clear. They're somewhat restrictive, but they're relatively clear. You can apply for an exemption, a Reg D, a Reg S, a Reg A+, a Reg CF. There are different categories depending on what you need. And I believe that you know it's, it's wide enough for most people to do most things. It, does not allow you to willy-nilly sell whatever you want to whoever you want, but following those rules, you can get it done. And that's what the whole security token uh, you know, ecosystem is based on. And I think other countries are starting to adopt something similar. Uh, it's similar to, to a certain extent to equities. You know, when you buy a stock, you've actually gone through an AML KYC process. You actually have a whitelisted wallet. The stock you're offered is either a public offering or is a private offering that you're qualified to buy through a certain exemption. In nowhere in the security space would you have been exposed to things that were not qualified. I think in the US, the days of boiler rooms and being called on, on some random stocks is kind of over, right? That, that, that's kind of gone. And I think the ICO world is heading down the STO direction. And just as a, as a random side comment, I think uh, you know the, there's a big question mark around the whole IEO prospect where a lot of exchanges are doing offerings uh, because the exchanges involved doesn't change the whole discussion I've just had. So I don't know what people want to do with that. I don't know where that, that goes, and, but that is an interesting question that's put up. Of course, most of the IEOs don't allow U.S. investors, so you know the U.S. regulations is not really a, a much of a discussion. Mm -hmm. But I feel like uh, regulations are starting to come into place. The U.S. certainly has a, a understandable and you know uh, regulatory framework. Uh, I believe uh, you know a number of countries are pushing down that direction. Hong Kong and Singapore have sandboxes now. Thailand's passed a set of rules. Um, Malaysia's passed a set of definitions, rules to come. Taiwan, I think, rules to come. Uh, you know, I'm hoping Japan will have something soon, and you know there are rumors that that may be the case. And uh, and I, I think those are all kind of safeguards and kind of driving more of a fundraising process back into the traditional security space, which I could kind of understand as a formerly and currently regulated person. It makes sense to me. The fact that you know people thought that wasn't the case is the part that I don't actually understand. So it's also in the spirit of kind of being regulated is a good thing everything above the law we had kind of the uh, guidelines coming out from the financial action task force now that also puts kind of more pressure on 
say, unregulated exchanges. So based on what you said, your view on that should certainly be that's a good thing that this is coming and harmonized around the major jurisdictions. Yeah, I, th I think that that's a good thing. I think, um, you know, it's the right thing to do. We can have long debates as to whether the lines are set properly for who should be an accredited, who should be qualified, and who should not. And we can debate on whether that's fair or not. But that debate should not supersede the, you know, outstanding current framework. Uh, just because people don't agree that that line was drawn fairly doesn't mean that they can just go and do whatever they want. Right. So, uh, yeah, no, I'm a believer in that framework working out. I'm a believer in the adoption of that. I think we're still not quite seeing, uh, you know, enough adoption. And I think um, yeah, that will come with the right products, with the right demand from clients. Let's get back to the to the hard assets. And you had the market comparison from the cash markets, derivatives markets, and real estate markets are always like still a multiple of the traditional derivatives markets, right? So is that the, the ultimate price, being able to digitize all these hard assets? Sure. I think hard assets, and, and I think a lot of people start with real estate because that's easy to understand and you know there's a lot of real estate securitization already there's reads there's uh, for what it's worth cdos and so forth so um you know there there's a lot of understanding in that space uh with that said i would take a step back and say that uh you know let let's let's take a deep breath and forget you know what we think is going to be big or small or make money or don't make money let's take a deep breath and think about why do we want to securitize it and what is the benefit? And then we can work our way forward from that. And from my perspective, being able to securitize gives you a number of things. First, it gives you fractionalization. You're able to take an asset, fractionalize it to smaller pieces and have you know, percentage ownerships and so forth. So that's one. Is that good or bad? Let's just leave it at that. The second point is the potential for liquidity. And I always say potential because people say, oh, well, if you securitize, you have liquidity. Well, liquidity means you have a buyer and a seller. If you don't have a buyer or a seller, then you don't have liquidity. It doesn't matter how, you know, what technology you use to, to securitize it. And the third thing is uh, reducing the cost, the admin cost of managing the fractionalization and the, and the potential liquidity trading of, of these tokens. And I think these three are the main points that you would want to take advantage of to, um, to use for hard assets. So that's the background of how I think about hard assets. My next step is, what is the point of securitizing hard assets? The point of securitizing hard asset is that there are certain assets in the world that are usually chunky and they increase in value as time goes and they typically don't have a cash flow. So in the traditional large institutional investment space, you would have lots of money, you would write a check, you would buy the whole thing and then you're done. Or you would put your money in a fund and the fund would buy the whole thing and then you were done and you will get your money back when you get your money back when that thing is sold and it's sold once every one, three, five, ten years and your money's locked up until then. Now, for most people that access doesn't work because these chunky assets like a $30 million apartment in Manhattan or something to that effect, it doesn't work. It, you know, most people can't afford that, but they do want to have an opportunity for that investment. So what you would do is you would be able to fractionalize it into smaller pieces and basically crowdsource the money. And more importantly, you can then make that token tradable so that it could be traded among the holders or other people that are interested in coming in the investment later. Now, 
uh, you know, there's some realities of it. There's obviously a legal ramification of that. You know, we, we've worked it out where, you know, certain, you know, under certain jurisdictions, you're able to trade this with a lockup for U.S. versus international investors. I think we figured out where we could do it without a lockup for international investors or a very short one. And in the U.S., we do have a lockup, but we can, we can shorten that also. But, you know, so, so there are regulatory, you know, differences between different types of holders. And the whole point of the STO software and the protocols and so forth is to make sure that those laws are followed, mm-hmm. those transfer restrictions are built into the technology of it. So back to the story of securitizing things, now one of the interesting things we're looking at is actually securitization of whiskey. Whiskey is an, a, an asset that increases in value just by sitting there in a barrel. As time goes, it gets more expensive. It's called aging your whiskey, and I think everybody understands that. So not a lot of people can afford a whole warehouse full of whiskey, but distillers are not in the business of selling aging of whiskey in you know, bottle, you know, values in bottles. So there's comes a middle ground where we could potentially assist in that, where we are buying a warehouse full of barrels at a young age and let it age. And we can tokenize that and we can have people trade those tokens. And we can do this on a regular basis so that it becomes a tradable asset class. We're almost creating a derivatives market on whiskey. And that is, uh, I like to use that as an example because people really understand that. It's, it, it's easy, it makes sense, the asset is increasing in value, and the investment makes sense. And for liquidity, you can trade it, you can hold on to it. And on a regular basis, we would probably sell a few barrel every year just to establish the pricing of whatever's left in that warehouse. So you would also get valuation and, and so forth. So, uh, you know, from that perspective, it's an, it's an easy example of what can be done. We've looked at many other asset classes, clean water, racehorses, and obviously real estate and, and so forth. So, uh, you know, there are many, many interesting things that can be done. And I think, uh, you know, the, the world is really uh, going to evolve into doing more of those uh, different assets. I mean, in terms of whiskey, I would like to see the dividend bottle. If you get it in natural form, that would be quite attractive. Um, but for many of these, these asset classes, there are certainly some voices out there that say, if there is liquidity, so if there in fact is an interest from, from buyers that uh, you can take advantage of, there should arguably be a liquidity premium. So the, the value of these assets actually should go up because they are much more tradable. Would you agree with that view? I, I think the, it's, it's the other way of saying it. I think when you don't have liquidity, you need a higher yield to justify the fact that you're blocked up for a longer period of time. And that's what a liquidity premium is. And if you make it liquid, then in theory, you may potentially lose that liquidity premium. And I don't disagree with that. I mean, that's how it works from a financial model mm-hmm. perspective. This mm-hmm. has nothing to do with technology. And I think that that is not unfair. Even without, to a certain extent, the liquidity premium, the things that are get securitized should still make sense as an investment. I think a lot of people miss the point that what we're talking about is an investment. What we're talking about is how to put money in and make more money and achieve a certain yield that you want. And the securitization and the application of blockchain technology is just there as an additional feature that would provide liquidity, ease of access, lower cost to to manage the, the, the process. But it's not designed to overcome a crappy investment, for example. If it's a crappy investment, it's a crappy investment. Back to um, the uh, liquidity premium. That liquidity premium is 
the other way of saying that is that is being captured or that is being traded away by the securitization, which for what it's worth, I think it's fine. So somebody will be able to get in that investment cheaper without that liquidity premium because um, you know it's in a liquid format. Yeah, okay. Um, Stop. Briefly about kind of the the market structure or the market infrastructure overall. I think we we hit a couple of points where we're saying right, it's will become more efficient. It will cost less to do it. But will we ultimately see a completely different financial system through kind of applying blockchain technology, going a more decentralized route? Or you think that the structures that we created over the last decades basically are so ingrained? It will be kind of a change on the fringes, but the basic financial system will stay as it is. Uh, I'm more inclined to believe in the second, and I think people who are more on the technology side would probably be disappointed by the fact that I say that. I feel like that the the financial world is, I don't know if using the word optimize is the right word, the financial world has evolved to where it is because it is the most efficient or the most, for lack of a better, the most cutthroat way, the cheapest, the most yeah, efficient way of, of doing it. That's how it ended up here. For it to evolve further, there needs to be certain advantages that are fundamentally different that would be uh, you know, good enough for, for, for it to you know, migrate to the, to the next stage. And I think a complete, let's throw out our current systems and build a brand new one is a very burdensome way of thinking about it. But with that said, I think some people are starting to do that, but they're adopting the technology to the current use and not really going all out and coming up with new ways of doing it because there's some value in the fact that we're in you know, tried and true systems. There, there's some value in that we've spent the past decades you know, working these out and so forth. Um, so with, with that said, let me kind of give an optimistic example of things. Um, <clears throat> Uh, kind of a long story, bear with me here. The first half of the story is that I used to work for Alliance Bernstein uh, back in Asia, and uh, Alliance Bernstein did very well in Taiwan. And the reason they did very well in Taiwan was because they took a their high yield product, they went from a quarterly dividend yield model to a monthly dividend yield model. Now, getting your dividend payout monthly instead of quarterly actually doesn't change things very much. Your dividend is your dividend. You are not creating more dividend by paying out more often. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, you know, there was that conversion and that conversion made people happy. And the conversion was somewhat painful from a back office perspective. They had to staff up, they had to build new systems to keep track of the dividends. They had to, the portfolio manager had to divid, uh, declare dividend three times as often. It's just, it's pain. But it was done because there was a thought that they could capture more market. And they did, they, they did really, really well. They, took out a whole, you know, almost the whole market. And their competitors had to keep up, so their competitors all had to also upgrade their back office and go to monthly, even though they no longer get the benefit of you know, the market share gains that Alliance Bernstein had. Mm-hmm. So, um, so that's one half of the story, and it was a lot of work to go from once a quarter to once a month, or three times a quarter. <clears throat> the other part of the story, I was sitting down with uh, the president of Securitize, met him for the first time, I sat down, I spoke with him, my simple question to him was, how much does it cost on your securitized platform to pay out a, a dividend? He looked at me and he didn't really understand my question. I said, well, how much does it cost for you to pay a dividend, right? And you know, what, what does that look like? 
And he said, well, let me tell you this. We have a client that is a mining company. So everybody that holds the security token that represents a fractional ownership of the mining company, and they get paid out whatever the mining company does. I'm like, okay, and then? He said, yeah, so they mine and they mine, and at the end of every day, they just pay it out daily. Is that often enough for you? I say, yeah, that, that, that's, that's plenty, yeah. So, um, you know, and, and after the story, I went and took a look, right? I mean, on Ethereum, which, you know, these guys run on today, um, the, the price of gas is, I think it was, uh, you know, two cents for, uh, you know, uh, taking a long time or eight cents if you wanted to done quickly. And I, and I asked my guys, like, what does it mean to take a long time for the two cent version? They said, yeah, that's like 18 minutes. So the efficiency of the system is at a different scale altogether, right? So you take the two examples, you look at dividend payouts previously where people had to write checks, you know, or get banks to do wire transfers and the cost of wire transfers, all the dividends, everybody versus just airdropping their dividends on a daily basis. Yeah, midnight every day, drop them their, their payouts and, uh, you know, at a cost of, you know, two cents and it takes all of 18 minutes to get done. It, it's the scale is just very, very different. And, uh, you know, so in terms of those things, I think they will become more efficient. Does that mean we're going to get rid of dividend models? Does that mean we're getting rid of things? We may get rid of like things like X dates, which used to take them three days to figure out who owes who's owed what dividend. That's why they had an X date, a dividend date and an X date to make sure that you make the cutoff so that you're on the books as the holder and so forth. In an STO, you know exactly who's on your book right at this moment. You want to pay a dividend, you get it done in 18 minutes. So, uh, yeah, the, the world will change from that perspective. But the current financial system of, you know, having equity, paying out dividends, you know, own fractional ownership of rights to exposure and so forth, those are probably pretty fundamental. I don't think they would change that much. Fabulous. Thank you. Uh, I think we started the journey kind of with, with your first steps here in Japan. And so maybe we ended here again. What's your view on the Japanese financial system, the, the industry, how innovative it is or maybe isn't? And how do you <coughs> see that evolving kind of over the next decade? Sure. I think... I mean, the, the, the very simple answer is I don't know, and I think everybody is able to say that. So let me kind of provide something there more than I don't know. Um, I like the Japan financial system. I think overall it's very orderly. It's a more developed system, so it's a little more stable. So there's less uh, kind of super innovative things that happen. I think the last big thing that I can remember was when I first started here, there were REITs. REITs were done in the US. I was at Merrill Lynch. We sent an expert on REITs over to Japan to handle the first you know, potential restructuring issuance and working that out. And that was exciting. I, I found that to be very exciting. And I feel a little bit similar to what we're looking at now when we talk about securitization of you know, real estate and whiskey and, and, and you know, security tokens and so forth. Um, I think Japan has, um, it does not currently have as clear a feel to what should or should not be done. And I'm hoping that Japan can come up with, uh, you know, security token regulations uh, soon because I think it makes sense. Because Japan has a developed securities law framework, it should not be difficult to take a look at it from that perspective. And I think right now, um, I think of, as of, I, I want to say a few 
years or a few months ago, I think the adoption is considering cryptocurrencies as currencies and using currency laws to regulate, uh, you know, in, in Japan. And I think that's one way of looking at it. But I think that's a, a relatively narrow scope for a tool that can do a lot more. It's, it's like saying, you know, we will, you know, manage all funds like fixed income funds, which is obviously you have equity fund, you have hedge funds, you have funds of all different shapes, colors and sizes. So I'm hoping that, uh, you know, they're willing to review that process and see if they can take a step back and, and look at, um, you know, security tokens and look at tokens in general more as a as a wrapper, as a box. What can you do with the box? How do you regulate the box so it could be accepted? And what's inside the boxes then becomes a, a separate conversation, which would be very interesting also. Fabulous. So thank you very much, Benjamin. Wishing sure. you all the best for the, the week that you spent here in Japan. And Great. hopefully we see you again soon. Thank you very much. That was Great. the Tokyo Fintech podcast live from Binary Star in Ginza with Benjamin Sai from Wave Financial. Thank you very much.